0: Hey y'all, I'm Erin Warren and welcome to Feasting on Truth. We are studying through the Gospel of John and today we are in John chapter four where we find Jesus's encounter with a Samaritan woman and we see a miracle displaying the power and truth of his word. Before we dive in, I want you to know it's not too late to join us live on Tuesday nights on Zoom. You can find more information at feastingontruth.com slash Bible study. There you'll also find a link to the study journal that goes along with this study. I have loved hearing from so many of you who have found the journal helpful in guiding your study. I personally have been writing out the passages in my journal, and it's been a fruitful practice as God draws my attention to each word. Not one word is in here by accident, and I love how I catch things I would often miss when simply reading it. Okay, well, let's do this. Let's dive in to John chapter
1: 4. Okay, guys, well, here we are on week five, getting ready to um, dive into John chapter four. And this is a familiar passage to many of us. Okay, honestly, I say that every week, because these are uh, probably all very familiar passages. But this one in particular, as we meet a Samaritan woman at a well, um, is one that I feel like is um, very much preached throughout Uh, women's ministry. And um, it's such a beautiful passage. Um, And honestly, part of what I found challenging this week was a not going back to all the notes of every time I've heard this one preached, although I did try to search for a couple of them. But um, this has been a passage that has been preached so much that um, I feel like we're always trying to find like, okay, what's the new angle we can take? Um, and there have been some bad sermons preached on this passage, Um, and so my prayer in my heart this week have been very much that I would see God's truth and really um, discover for myself what this passage is about, Um, not what I've heard it's about, not what um, someone may have said or what I want it to be about or twist it to be something that I really want it to be, but really to kind of dig um deep into what is true about this passage and what is it that god really wants for us and so um it's my prayer that that's what comes out of my mouth so with that let me pray Uh, father god i just thank you for your living and active word and god i thank you that it does change us and that lord even in wounding us and cutting to the heart of the matter as stacy so um poignantly said um Lord, that you also heal us and that you draw us closer to you and that you make us more like you. And as we see tonight, Lord, you build a deeper faith in us because of what you do in our life. And so I just pray, God, um, that I do justice to your words, Lord, that um, you speak through me, that um, I share truth, Lord. You have run of my mouth. It is yours. Use it. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so Samaritan woman, here we go. Uh, John 4, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So if you're following along in your map on page 18 in your book, um, so we see Jesus was down here in the Judean countryside, and he is now coming up here, back up toward Cana in um, Galilee. And you'll see this region right in here in the middle called Samaria. So this is where the Samaritans lived. Um, and so I want to give you guys, so I kind of, I mentioned this in my email um, in the podcast last week, um, where I was talking about Nicodemus and my failure to Google or to put him in the search bar and see where else he showed up in the scripture. Um, this is a really good um, practice for us, especially when we meet people groups um, because a lot of these people groups are mentioned in the old Testament and that helps us understand their origin and where they came from and the heritage. Um, that's why genealogies are so important in the old Testament is because they tell us who these people are. Um, so the Samaritans were a group of people, um, Basically, uh, it's probably not the right way to say it, but they were a mixed race between Jewish and Assyrian. So um, when um, the Jews were exiled to Babylon um, and um, the Assyrians kind of moved into the neighborhood and they began to intermarry and began mingling their gods with um, the faith of the Jews who were left. And so... um, The Assyrians were like the worst of the worst of the enemies of the Jews. And so um, they had kind of created this new um, mixed race that the Jews viewed as inferior. Um, The Samaritans believed only in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, And they thought Moses was the last great prophet. And they were looking for another prophet to save the people save their people um many jews had to pass through samaria on their way to festivals in jerusalem so anyone who was coming from the north south for the festivals where we talked about that passover how they would come um to jerusalem for passover um samaria going through samaria would have been the fastest route Um, But not everybody would take that route because of the tensions between these two people groups. Violence often broke out. Um, They would heckle each other. Um, In fact, about 128 BC, I think um, there was a temple on top of Mount Gerizim, which we're going to meet and see in just a few minutes, um, that the Jews destroyed. That was where the Samaritans worshiped. And then in return, um, the Samaritans. 100 years later or so, took um, bones of dead um, people and at Passover snuck into the temple and desecrated the temple with the unclean um, bones of these bodies. And so there was just a lot of hatred between these two people. Um, And while um, many would take the long route around, um, there were some that would go through And so when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it doesn't mean there was no other option route wise, but instead the Greek word has this intonation of that. It's what must happen. It was necessary for him to go. It is absolutely necessary. And I really think Jesus in his omniscience knew that he had to meet this woman. And so um, we see It's not an accident that John would add these words that he had to go through Samaria. So verse five. uh, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. So um, again, if you're looking on your map right in the middle, you'll see um, two little mountains in right, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and then right in the middle, you'll see Sychar. Um, it's um, very close to Shechem. In fact, some think that it possibly could have been Shechem. Um, some others think that it's um, modern day Askar, but um, what's important to know is that it was probably about a mile from the well. And so this well was about a mile outside of town. And that is where we see Jesus sitting. Um, If you saw in my email this week, the image of Jacob's well, y'all, when I saw that, like, I always pictured this massive kind of well where people would kind of gather around and, you know, you could um, be on one side and maybe someone else could be on the other side or, you know, but there's no hiding when you're at this. I mean, it was, it was very small. And so, um, And Jesus is here at the sixth hour. Um, So they start counting at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would be noon. Um, And this is the hottest part of the day. It's typically when um, they would be looking for shade. They would be eating um, a light meal or they would be taking a nap. But this woman is coming to the well at noon and she's coming alone. and what this suggests is that this woman was not welcome. And so um, so she is coming at a plate time when no one else would be there. Um, so she didn't have to be around anyone else. She didn't have to rub elbows. And she's about to have the encounter that changes her life. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. I feel like that's kind of like the understatement of the century. <laughs> um, but um, so here's what you need to know. This was not normal, nor was it acceptable for a man to be speaking to a woman who was not family culturally, even more so. It was not acceptable that a man, a Jewish man, would speak to a Samaritan woman. Um, And I love, we see again here that Jesus um, is putting people over rules, people over ritual. Um, Because if he were to drink from a vessel, a Samaritan woman is um, considered perpetually unclean. And so for him to drink water from her vessel, to have no vessel for him, for him to drink would make him unclean. And so we see Jesus saying that is not what matters. What matters is this woman and not um, the rules in which society has deemed how they can um, interact. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I can almost hear her desperation. I don't want to have to come back here. Give me this water that, that would allow me to not have to continue to come to this well um and i love how jesus flips the script on her she um he asks her for water but in turn he says if you knew who asked you would be asking me for water and the water that he gives is living water um living water was really important in um um the in their culture um for jewish people the rites of purification had to use living water. Living water meant it was flowing water or running water, not stagnant. And so water that would have been in a well like this would have been stagnant water. Um, but water that flowed um, is what was required. And actually, if you look at your map of Jerusalem on page 19, you can see some dotted lines. So like you can see here the Gihon Spring and you can see a dotted line that kind of comes into the pool of sol- I can't really say say that right and you can see a couple other dotted lines they had created um, ways for the living water for spring water that was continually flowing to come into the city or fill to pools so that people could use it for their households for um, their purification and so living water was not a foreign concept Um, and we actually see it um, in scripture a lot Um, Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns, like um, these wells, that they had to be maintained. They had to be um taken care of, whereas the spring of living water continued the flow of water. And so um, it would, the, the constant flow of water would satisfy. The constant flow of water would be a permanent solution because it didn't require the maintenance that a cistern had. And in Jeremiah, we see God, um, talking about how his people have forsaken the living water that he is providing. Um, the, the, he's comparing himself to the fountain of living water. And instead he says they have built for themselves cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. They do not, um, satisfy the cisterns that, that they were digging were not going to be the, the solution to their problems. And I think, um, What I see here is how often have we dug our own broken cistern that cannot satisfy Um, only Jesus, only Jesus can give us the living water. Only Jesus can make the dead come alive. And I know it's the Sunday school answer, but the answer really is Jesus. Um, No cistern that we dig will satisfy and provide life for us like Jesus will. Um, And coming to him and getting this living water doesn't mean that we won't struggle. It doesn't mean that we won't have hardships. But our addictions, our materialism, our control issues, our mouth, um, sex, um, shopping, all of these things, nothing will satisfy us um, the way that Jesus does. They will not fulfill us. They will not change us. They will not grow us the way that Jesus does. And while there's this layer that I feel like is this turning to other things besides Jesus to bring fulfillment in our lives, I think there's also a second layer that even when we have come to Jesus, that so often we kind of um, um, take our actions and almost try to buy his favor. So we think, that we can buy a good life by our religious acts, or we can buy a good life. And so we build this cistern that says, like, my giving will make Jesus love me. My serving will make Jesus love me. If I do my devotional every morning, it will make Jesus love me. If I, if I check all these boxes, it will make Jesus love me. And I want you all to know that that none of that will be what provides the well, the spring of living water in you. None of that will bring a good life. Um, We cannot earn our way to heaven. It is only through Jesus, only through Jesus. Um, Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so this is where we have to be really careful to understand the culture here and understand a woman's position, particularly a woman who was left without a husband. Um, so women who had many husbands were not the same as we might see in 21st century America. Women who have had five husbands—it doesn't mean she's a hussy. It doesn't mean she's a gold digger. Um, culturally, she would have been blamed whether it was her fault or not, um, even if she was widowed, she would be blamed, but even more so if she had been divorced and really honestly, the law and the culture left no place for a woman who had been divorced. Um, she had no ability to really care for herself. And so it's possible she may not have had a choice. Um, And it's really easy for us to focus on what we don't know here and try to make assumptions about her life and about her sin and about who she was. But honestly, it's just not here. And so I want us to be careful that we don't pigeonhole this woman to be a certain kind of woman. But what we know is that she had had multiple husbands. And because of that, this woman had no hope of belonging. She had no hope of belonging, not only um, in her own society, but she also, being a Samaritan, had no hope of belonging to the family of God. Because all of her life she had been told that she, was, she had watched um, the fighting between the Jews and the Samaritans. And she wasn't even allowed in the temple. And so we see, we can almost feel her tension as she begins to ask the next questions of jesus in verse 19 the woman said to him sir i perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say in jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the jews but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I and I who speak to you am he so I want to jump back real quick to these two mountains. Um, if you look at your map, you can see, I mentioned it earlier, we have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And these are really important mountains. So if you um, put them into the search bar in a Bible, like uh, BibleGateway.com or an online Bible where you can search, um, you can go back and read in Deuteronomy 11, in Deuteronomy 27, and in Joshua 8, more about these um, these mountains. These are um, the Blessed Mountain and the Cursed Mountain. Um, When Moses was on Mount Moriah getting the Ten Commandments for the second time, God gave him instructions, very specific instructions, that when they had crossed into the Promised Land, that they were to line up the tribes, six on one mountain and six on the other, and proclaim um, over Mount Ebal curses and over Mount Gerizim blessings. And so that's why we see that the Samaritans believed when she says worship on this mountain, she's probably pointing to Mount Gerizim, this mountain that was blessed. And what's really cool is that even when you look at pictures of them, Mount um, Ebal is almost completely limestone. Um, And Mount Gerizim, the blessed mountain, has green shrubs on it. And this is the coolest part to me it has a fresh water spring in it. And so we have, um, that was where that temple was that the Jews destroyed was on the top of the mountain. And there's still ruins on the top of that mountain of that temple. Um, But I think about this woman who walked a mile in the heat of the day to this well that was between these two mountains, one blessed and one cursed, and I wonder if she ever looked at the blessed mountain and thought, am I ever going to be there, or am I cursed because of what I've done, am I cursed because of who I was born as, am I cursed um, because of what has happened to me, whether it was by her own choice or not. And here she is posing this question as if to Jesus to say, Is there a place for me? I know there's a Messiah coming. I know that there is someone coming who will teach us, who will save us. You say that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but our people say we worship here. And she's waiting for the answer that will tell her if there will ever be a place where she can belong. And Jesus, to this broken, outcast, hurt woman, proclaims that he is that man. And I just like y'all that he would pick this woman to reveal that to. Um if you're keeping track in the back of your book, this is a reference to his divinity because he's the messiah, the Christ. Um, and Jesus tells her that the answer that she longs to hear that neither will they worship on Mount Gerizim and neither will they worship at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And I loved, I looked at the, um, as I was looking through original language, the word true for true worshipers literally means made of truth. It carries the intonation of what is visibly true with underlying truth. So it's true inside and out. It is true in every aspect, and that's what it means to be a true worshiper of Jesus. Because we see over and over, particularly in the Gospels, these religious leaders who had the outward appearance of worship, but the inside was was sick and sinful. And we see these other people who have um, outward sin who are longing inside to worship in truth. And he's saying when the inside and the outside matches, when what you believe on the inside matches what you, how you live on the outside, that is true worship. And we can only do that when we have the Holy Spirit. And it's when we come to Jesus and when we um, allow him to put the wellspring of living water, the Holy Spirit in us, that we are even able to worship in spirit and in truth. This is not an illusion of truth. Remember that the law was an imperfect system meant to point us to the perfect Christ. In Hebrews, the author calls it a shadow. It was meant to give us a picture to point us to Jesus, who will then um, perfectly and truthfully save and cover us. And so, the worship that was on that mountain and the worship that was in the temple, that whole system of sacrifices and cleansing and burning incense and the altar and the light, all of that was a shadow meant to point us to Jesus. And that we would no longer need the sacrificial system. We would no longer need to be closed off from God, but that He was opening a way for us. And then Jesus tells her that. I am the original language uses that word. I am. So it's a, that's one of the seven Remember when I talked about the Bible project video, how there were seven blatant, I am statements and there's seven not as blatant. I am statements. This is one of the the first not blatant. I am statement. Um, and, um, so he is, um, he kind of alludes to it by using the personal name of God here. Um, And because of Jesus coming as Messiah, we can now have the Holy Spirit. We can now have the spring of living water inside of us. We no longer have to continue to work and return to the same wells, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking for eternal life. Nothing that we do is going to buy that for us, but we get to come to him and he puts that spring of living water in us. No more games, no more keeping up with images. We are filled by him. And just then the disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with woman. but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Um, Side note, a disciple commonly would not question his rabbi, but I really like how John includes this detail. Like, listen, we were all thinking it, but none of us said it. Verse 28 So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then we see this exchange. I'm not going to read it because I'm running out of time here. But with the disciples again, so we saw the Samaritan woman kind of going back and forth with not understanding that um, she was looking for something physical, and Jesus was offering something spiritual. And we see this again with the disciples trying to um, get Jesus to eat physical food, and he's saying, "No, the uh, my food is to do the will of the Father." And he says, um, and they're kind of you can tell they're kind of confused and. Um, he talks about the harvest. And um, I love this. He says, look, I tell you in verse 35, um, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white with harvest. Um, one, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And so I just imagine they lifted their eyes and saw the people coming from town she had run a mile back to town to tell them, come see a man who told me all I ever did. And because of her testimony, these Samaritans, they come out. And Jesus is saying, listen, even though I haven't died, and even though I haven't risen again, I'm already reaping the harvest. I'm bringing it in. And uh, verse 39 it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So we see um, this woman, because of her testimony, because she was not ashamed of what God had done in her life, she, um, she went and told the people. And they not only followed out of curiosity, but then they believed because they saw it for themselves. The word testimony in Greek, um, it means to testify. But y'all, this really got me. But more specifically, in general, to give, not keep back testimony. She did not hold back. This woman had every right to. She could have very easily taken that and said, I got it. I got my living water and gone back and lived her life. But she was so changed. She was so moved that she didn't care anymore about what others thought of her. She went running into the town and she told them, Come see, come see. And they came and they softened themselves. And Jesus and his disciples stayed with these people that were supposed to be their enemies, that they weren't supposed to eat their food, that they weren't supposed to do all these things with, and stay in their houses and drink their water. And yet he did. And, and I just love seeing our God, our Jesus, who says, I came for everyone. I didn't just come for the people who are good. I didn't just come for the righteous. So I have a couple key takeaways. Um, one is that we see John pointing us to the omniscience of Jesus again. I want you to know that God knows you. And for some that might scare you, but I also want you to know that he sees you. Just like what I read in Stacy's devotional, he is there discerning your heart and your thoughts. And he, for your own good, is moving you toward his own heart. He met a woman who had no hope of belonging, who was ashamed of her past, and he not only gave her a place in his family, but he used her story to reach many more. He moved her from the Curse Mountain to the Blessed mountain. He moved her from the desolate to the place with the spring of living water. If I want to get even deeper, what is it that we are drawing our um on for our life other than Jesus? What wells are we returning to again and again, looking for fulfillment instead of coming to our source of living water? And lastly, in this, um, section, are we holding back our testimony? Are we testifying to what God has done for us? Revelations 12, 11 says that they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And most of us stop right there. But the rest of that verse says, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Fear is what often holds us back from sharing, from giving our testimony but these people that, oh, that um, it prophesies about that are sharing their testimony that overcome the enemy. They didn't love their own lives, even unto death. Are we allowing our fear of, of our life, fear of embarrassment, fear of rejection, hold us back from sharing? Yes, we need to share wisely. Yes, there are moments to share in certain places. But don't ever hold back for fear of what will happen. Trust God that He will use His words for His glory. Um, are we using our story for his glory? and this is and this is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers too. Um, you know, I, that's why part of why I wanted to start including testimonies in our in our time together because, When you hear what someone else um, went through, when you hear how God has delivered them, it strengthens our own faith. And so we need to be sharing our story, not only with people who don't believe, but with people who do. Hebrews 3, 12 12 through 15 says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And they're talking about the wilderness when the Israelites hardened their hearts in the wilderness against God. We have to exhort one another. We have to remind each other of his faithfulness. We have to remind him of them, of what God is doing in our life. Don't harden your heart, but instead let's exhort one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's share our testimony. And then I want to close too, and I always feel bad. So John writes these like really great stories. And then there's like this little tag story at the end. And I always feel like I've like, done a whole sermon here. And then we get to this one. And I'm like, Oh yeah, let me wrap this up with this. But here is our second sign. Um, so we see um, he came again to Cana and Galilee um, where he had made water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So you can look at your map, you can find Cana and you can find Capernaum. They were about just shy of a day's journey apart. And so this official, Hears that Jesus is there. Um, it's impo- it's possible that he um, had heard, seen Jesus's signs or heard him speak when he was in Jerusalem for festival. So he hears that Jesus is in Cana, and so he leaves because his son was sick um, to the point of death. And so he comes to Cana looking for Jesus, and he says to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe." Verse forty-nine. The official said to him, "Sir, come down before my child dies." Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He asked the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the, the fever left him. The father knew that the, that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this um, story, I actually first really realized in this book, it's called The One O'Clock Miracle. This um, series, um, it's called Tales That Tell the Truth. And there's probably like eight of them now, I think. Um, And they're all, they all have the same illustrator, but they all have a different author. And um, I just love, so this one tells this story of the one o'clock, which would have been the seventh hour. Um, and so um, but what I love is that it talks about in this book how he believed Jesus' words and that Jesus' words are true. Because if I don't know that I would have had faith to turn around and go home without Jesus. And even though it feels like in reading this that he's questioning, oh, you'll only believe if you see signs and wonders. And maybe it was true. Maybe it is. Um, I I can't know because I wasn't there. But what I do know is that he believed, and it says he believed. Um, and so we see again the the pattern in both of these stories that John continues to set up with a claim of Jesus or a sign that Jesus does. And at the end of the story, the the people of the story are left with a choice: do they believe or do they not? And we see not only the Samaritan woman. And many in the village believe because of um, the claim he made there. We now see this this man in his household believe because of the sign he did in healing his son. Um, and here's my key takeaway for this one. Do you believe his word is true? He is trustworthy. He is the God of truth, the Elohim. Amen. Isaiah 65, 16 calls him by this name. And the Hebrew word for truth is amen. It means so be it. He is the God of the amen. And it's a really fascinating word. This is just a little extra two two bits here. Um, because when it was, it was transliterated, which means that they didn't change the spelling of it when they changed it into a new language. And so when it went from Hebrew into Greek, it was Amen. And when it went from Greek into Latin, it was amen. And when it went from uh, Latin to English, it was amen. And in fact, almost every language, most, it's considered a universal word because in so many different languages, amen means amen, which means amen. Um, But it means that there is no falsehood or lie in him. Not only does he speak truth, but he is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And this man believed. And the sign that Jesus did strengthened that faith in him. Um, I love this quote from Matthew Henry. It said, diligent comparing the works of Jesus with his word will confirm our faith. Hearing what he says, seeing what he does, will continue to confirm our faith and deepen our faith and strengthen our faith. It's why I am so um passionate why I make such a big deal about the character of God and why I have you as part of your study week pull out those characteristics because when we know who he is then it confirms our faith it helps us trust him more when we recognize who he is and so this man says he believes and he he I just love that it's at the very hour the very hour that Jesus says your son will live his son began to get better.
0: I love how both of these passages point us to new life. The first story, a spiritually saved life that brought eternal life to many as many believed. And the second, a physically saved life that in turn led a household to eternal life and belief in who Jesus is. And while I do not want to neglect the latter story, there's just something in the story of the Samaritan woman that captures me. Maybe because she's a woman, maybe because I can relate to feeling like I'm on the outside. She was looking for something on earth to fill her. And Jesus met with her. He spoke with her. He revealed himself as Messiah to her. And he offered her something that nothing else on earth will ever give us eternal life, yes, but even more so a relationship with the one who created us, the one who saved us, a relationship with our God. And I think it just shows us how much our Savior loves us, that he would put aside the cultural norms, and that he values you no matter where you were born, no matter who your family is or what choices you've made or what choices were made for you or what our culture dictates, I want you to know that Jesus cares deeply for you. He loves you and there is nothing you can do to earn that love. All you have to do is simply believe and say yes to following Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, I just thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his coming, Lord, as living water, Lord, that would spring up in us, Lord, that we no longer have to look to this world for satisfaction, to the shadow of the things that are here, but Lord, that you in perfect completeness have done the work, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, having finished what was started. And Lord, that we only need to follow that we just need to say yes, and God, that that spring of living water inside of us compels us to become more like you, that compels us to tell the world our testimony for your glory, Lord, not for our own. And God, I pray for everyone listening. I pray for everyone that is hearing this prayer right now, God, that you would just meet them, that would you would remind them that they are your son, that they are your daughter, God, that you love them no matter what, and that um, all they have to do is say yes and follow you. God, I pray that our stories would point people to you, and that, God, many would believe because of what you have done in our lives, because of the word of our testimony. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb that covers us, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.